The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'd like to call your attention once again to the remarkable relationship the Apostle Paul had with the Thessalonian church. This passage gives us wonderful insight to the bond that pastor and people have, both in the first century church and also in the Lord's churches today. In the New Testament church, there is a a relationship of mutual love and affection between the pastor and the people. Now, we've noticed in previous messages that Paul's visit to Thessalonica was brief. And as we've looked at this passage before, we we remarked how it seems that there couldn't be any significant emotional ties that would that would be made in such a short visit as Paul had with these people. But we've learned in our Christianity that this is our experience, that Christians can meet one another in what seems to be chance encounters, and often that brief acquaintance becomes one that we remember for a lifetime. There's a glance, there's a look that passes between believers when they meet, and these chance encounters are meaningful and they're joyful because we know that we share a bond with that person, that we share a family relationship, and that we're one with every believer of every nation across this world because we are uh, of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. I felt this some weeks ago when I was in the post office and I heard a, a postal employee behind the counter who was on the other end of the post office from me and he was behind the counter singing a familiar Christian song. And I called out from him from where I stood and I said, hey, that is a great song that you're singing. And he said, it sure is. Uh, he said, Jesus Christ has done so much for me. I felt the same connection when I was in a car wash and I spoke to a young man who was there reading his Bible. I felt it when I was standing in line just uh, two or three weeks ago behind a man in a fast food restaurant. I noticed on the back of his cap that it said Jesus. And so I asked that man if he was a Christian. And instantly there was a connection that was made between us and we exchanged business cards and he said, sometime give me a call. And then I mentioned the connection that I made last April when I spoke to a man outside of Dunkin' Donuts in uh, a Dunkin' Donuts in Washington, D.C. And I knew he had to be a Christian because he was eating sanctified food. But he was there and he was sitting at the counter and he was repeating scriptures that he was memorizing. So I spoke to him and we shared our experiences. Those are welcome, memorable times. And it feels good living in this country uh, that's becoming increasingly hostile to our faith that we can meet people who have the same hope in Christ that we have. 
And maybe it gives us a little bit of a sense of what it was like in, in first century Christianity when you would meet someone and you're a Christian and you would speak to that person and you're not quite sure if they might report you to the authorities because you are a believer. And then how, how welcome it was to find out that that person was also a believer in Jesus Christ. And just imagine how refreshingly joyful that was to, to find someone who, who believes and has a like faith to you. Well, that mutual love and friendship between Christians is only exponentially multiplied when we have the opportunity to become friends with each other, when we have more time to spend with one another, and it's intensified when that person does become your friend because you're the one that gave them the gospel. And as a, a pastor, uh, to know that you've baptized someone or that you've taught them and you've seen them grow in the faith, that just increases that love that you have for that person. I remember the very first baptism that I, that I did in this church when I became pastor of Berean. I'll never forget that one. Interestingly, we read in Scripture that Paul didn't keep a record of the people that he baptized. He, he said, I'm not sure which ones that I baptized. I haven't baptized very many. In the church at Corinth, he said, I baptized Crispus and Gaius, and I baptized some who are of the uh, household of Stephanus. Besides that, I don't really recall whether I baptized anyone else. Well, I don't really find that experience to be like Paul's because I remember the people that I baptized. I remember the babies that I've dedicated. I remember the weddings that I have performed. And I remember sadly and joyfully at the same time the funerals that I've spoken and uh, spoken at and, and talked about a, a saint of God that's gone on to meet the Lord. And I've given that eulogy. I remember those. And I know, I know other Christians understand that feeling. All of us have these feelings. If you are a believer in Christ, you know what I'm talking about. And it's because of this, the Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And that love is love for the Savior and it's love for our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that pastors often have a, a deeper uh, sense of this love because we share some experiences and details of people's lives that others may not share. There are problems that you come to the pastor with and you share those problems, you've encountered some things and you ask the pastor if he would make it a matter of prayer and those things you've only shared with him. And when I stand sometimes in this pulpit and I say, well, I have an unspoken prayer request that I want to bring before you, usually that's because I know something that you don't know and someone has shared something with me that I know is not best that we just reveal it to everyone in general. And this is a promise that a pastor uh, should make to you, any pastor should do this, that when you share something that is private and very personal, be sure that I'm not going to share it with someone that you told me not to. I'm not going to tell people that you tell me not to tell. And this is part of the bond that exists between the pastor and the people. Well, what we're reading here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is about the pastor's heart. This is about his emotions, about his feelings, about his affections for the people. It's care and concern that he has for their welfare. I mean, after all, people are the ministry. People are the pastor's ministry. It's that shepherding of them, the leadership of them. That is the minister's life. Now, if you'll look at our text, I want to begin reading at verse number 5, and today we'll consider the passage down 
to verse number 10. And I want you to know that this, this message is also a personal one from me. This is a one week early Thanksgiving message of my appreciation for the members of Berean Baptist Church. And just to give you an idea how it, it comes about that I preach this message a week early, this is the Thanksgiving message for next week. But because of complications with our uh, sabbatical that we were to take and the timing didn't work out just right, this is where we come to in our study of First Thessalonians. So we actually come a week early for what I, what I planned for the Thanksgiving sermon. So again, this is a personal, much a personal message from me to you. First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse number 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. The occasion of First Thessalonians is a letter written to people who have been deprived of their spiritual leader. They're deprived of their mentor in the faith. Their mentor, the Apostle Paul, is separated from them. And as he spoke earlier in, in the passage, that he is as a mother is bereaved of her children. Paul said that he could no longer forbear not knowing how they were. Now, he repeats this from this third chapter in verse number one. And what he means is that he could no longer stand the separation and the anxiety of not knowing if their faith was still firm. And he was anxious to find out about it. And so he trusted his or sent his trusted and valuable helper in the ministry, Timothy, to return to Thessalonica and to report on how the church there was doing. Paul couldn't go himself, although he very desperately wanted to go. We've seen that he was hindered by Satan. God allowed that hindrance to stand and Paul couldn't go. We don't understand all the reasons for that. But even though that initial stay that Paul had with him was very brief, the thing that bothers him here is that, that he is not sure if this salvation that they have professed in Christ, when they said that they had become believers, he was not quite sure if that profession would stick. Through all the persecutions and all the troubles that they would encounter, would they still hold strong in their faith in Jesus Christ? Do they have a real conversion experience? Oh, they said that they believed. And they did show some signs of belief. It looked like they wanted to know more. Uh, they asked to know more. But what Paul didn't have time to do when they asked was to ground them further in the faith. Because as we've already learned, he was driven out of Thessalonica by enemies. So he couldn't stay with the people. And so what he wants to know here is the profession that they made, one that comes only from what's in their head, or has this reached all the way down into their hearts? Do they really understand who Jesus is? Do they really believe in him? And is that faith firm? 
Now, I do know that there are some preachers who, who believe and teach that a profession of faith is an instant guarantee that the seed of the gospel has taken root. That many times, after only a very brief explanation of the gospel, that a preacher or a soul winner will guarantee that person that they have eternal life. But Jesus and the apostles indicate otherwise, that it takes time to see if that seed sown is in good ground, and will it grow, spring up into eternal life? Last week we mentioned the parable of the sower, and in that parable Jesus said that a seed, the seed of the gospel, can fall on rocky ground where there's not much earth, and it may spring up for just a moment, but then when the sun comes up, the plant withers and dies. He said when troubles come, when persecutions come, a superficial faith will fail. Now Paul expresses the same here in another way. He expresses it in his anxiety. It's his anxiety about their faith. And that's an indication that he wasn't quite sure about these converts. So this was the purpose of sending Timothy back to, to visit with them to find out, did that seed fall into good ground? Is that faith real? Because this always happens. A real faith in Jesus Christ will hold fast. People who are born again believers in Jesus do not give up their faith. Now you see in verse number five, he wanted to know about their faith. If their faith failed, his efforts were in vain because they'd not become true believers. Or at least, maybe their faith is too weak to be effective. And if they hid their faith because of persecution, the church wouldn't reach out, people wouldn't witness, and there, therefore the church doesn't grow and it won't survive. And we see that going, going back to the very beginning of the church in the first century, and down through the centuries, that a test of true profession is not a faith that you express only with your mouth, but it's a faith that is expressed in your actions. Didn't James say that faith is shown by our works? Didn't James say that we need to, he, we need to show our good works and that means that our faith is real? And didn't Jesus say that we should evidence our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven? So true faith is always shown by the effect that it has in your life. And I don't want anyone to be confused about that because I'm not say, confused. I'm not saying that, that anyone ever got saved by some good thing that they did because there's no one who can do, ever do anything that's good enough to be saved. But once God changes the heart, then that change becomes evident outwardly and we do show good works. Now here in, in this chapter, the faith had an effect on their, on their lives. Back in chapter 2, Paul spoke of suffering and persecution. In this chapter, in verse 3, it's affliction. In verse number 4, it's tribulation. And the test of a true faith is what do you do in those times? Do you hold out in the trying times? And that's what Paul wants to know. Was their faith real? See, if it's a true faith, Christ will hold you fast. And a true faith is a persevering faith. And so, to find out, he sent Timothy. Timothy goes back to examine them and then he reports his findings to the apostle. And we see in verse number six that his report was a glowing report. Let's talk first about that, the glowing report. Verse number six. But now when Timotheus came from you unto us 
and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Now, Timothy returned with news that Paul said, that's good tidings. Paul said, that's a good thing. The news was of their faith and their, and their charity and the goodwill that they had towards the apostle. In our previous lessons in chapters 1 and 2, uh, that is an account of what uh, the report that Paul received. We saw how he begins in chapter 1 commending them for their faith and love and their enduring hope of Christ. He said that he knew their election was of God because there was evidence there. And Timothy, this is what he presented in his report. So chapter 3 is the narrative of how this information came to Paul and why he wrote this letter in the way he did. The report was very good. Good or better than he hoped. Now an interesting note here is the in the text is the language that Paul used to describe it. He said that it was good tidings. And if you look in the Greek language behind this, uh, the phrase that he used or the word that he used is the same as gospel. Here it's the word evangelizo. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used that it doesn't refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that tells us that this news was so good that Paul was lifted by it. It was such good news that Paul could compare it to someone who first hears about Jesus Christ. A new convert that's, that's heard the good news of Christ. He said, this is how good this news is to me. And you'll notice also our King James begins verse number 6. But now... And you can't see it in the English, but this is a word that conveys urgency. But now, he says, as soon as I heard this, he said, I had to sit down and I had to write this letter. I couldn't wait to respond. And so his heart was so full that he needed to get it out. And so he must begin immediately while the emotions are overflowing from his heart. If he'd waited, the moment would have passed. The impact of what he says would have passed, that it would dull, and he didn't want that. But what he wants these people to see is there is an overflowing heart here, such good news that he's received. And this would tell them how he was excited and how he cared when his enemy said that he didn't care. And so led by the Holy Spirit to write, he gave them and us a letter that is timeless, and it speaks of the bursting heart of an enraptured pastor who's just heard that his people are truly in the faith and that his ministry was successful and effective. Now let's examine these marvelous pieces of information in Timothy's report. First in his report, there is fidelity. Fidelity is their faith. They heard the word, they believed the word, and the report is they had stayed faithful to the word. Now you must understand that Paul's fear for them was one that he'd seen many times before. And that is the reports are not always good. Sometimes the converts failed. Sometimes they succumbed to Satan's attack and the word hadn't taken root. The hot sun of persecution arose. It scorched the plant. And it was persecution that... that Paul knew was sure to come as soon as he left. 
They persecuted him, and so he was sure they would persecute them. In Acts 20, he said, grievous wolves will enter among you, and they won't spare the flock. They will come in, and they'll attack and devour. So he'd seen that before. In other places where he had preached, he'd seen this happen, and it was inevitable that that persecution would come, and he always warned churches when he had to leave what would happen to them. It's sure to come, the persecution. And so the question is, had it happened to the Thessalonians in such a way that the grievous wolves had destroyed them? And then when he gets this report, this report glows with the stability of their faith. They held out, they endured, their hope in Christ was strong. They held their ground. And that is a mark of true faith. And so it's been with many martyrs through Christian history. They proved their faith by taking the vicious blows of persecutors. They withstood inquisitions. They withstood the flames of fire and the tortures that were put on them. Many of them died horrible deaths without renouncing their faith in Christ. So this report is fidelity. It's steadfastness which caused them to witness the grace of God. And they not hidden the gospel, though it brought them more affliction. And so in Thessalonica, there is a testimony of faith. And isn't that the legacy that every gospel preacher hopes to leave? Whether the preacher lives or dies, whether he's absent or there, he wants to know, do the converts remain in the faith? And is that legacy important for the preacher himself? Well, in one sense it is. There's the satisfaction that you didn't spend your life in all the troubles that ministry brings for nothing. But success or no success, that's not the preachers to own because all that we do here redounds to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul said, For all things are for your sakes, or everything that we go through as ministers is for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. And so the legacy that we hope to leave here as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Christ is magnified and it goes on beyond the time that the preacher is here. And we'll see this in just a minute as Paul says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. The next in this glowing report is their charity. It's good tidings of faith and charity. Charity, of course, refers to their love. The Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love, but we don't often think of Paul that way. You know, I have more a picture of Paul as the hard-nosed, to-the-point theologian of the church, the one who gives hard facts and and leaves no wiggle room in any of his arguments. Uh, We saw that in chapter 2 with his disgust for the Jews that persecuted him. Several times he deals with that subject in the harshest of terms, And the comments that I make on that subject pale in comparison to what Paul said. But I think more of Paul like a a doctrinal preacher, someone who didn't really spend a whole lot of time with the lovey-dovey type of sermons that preachers like to preach today. There's so many that don't ever want to talk about doctrine because they don't want to take people into deeper things where they might have to answer questions and people might get upset about things that they say. But a closer examination of Paul shows that many times he did speak of love. But we also understand that he always gave a right doctrinal perspective of it. To him and to Christ, in fact, love is not an emotion. 
Love is one of the most difficult parts of Christianity because it has to be worked on. It is a deliberate decision to love. And it always flows out of obedience to God's commandments. John says that one who says that he loves God but doesn't obey the commandments is a liar. Jesus said, how can you say that you love me if you don't do the things that I say? And that not only speaks of the love that we are to have to God, but the love we are to have for our fellows, for our family, the Christians that believe the same as we believe. So love is not just a feeling of emotion. Love is something very deliberate that we do. You can't fall in and out of this love. It's not an accident. Oh, love in the scriptures is something that you work at, that you cultivate every day of your life. And so for Paul to say, I heard of your love, was to say that he knew the Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts. And that, my friends, is a sign of authentic Christianity. God so loved the world. And if they show that they love the world, and they love God, they love the world by giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they keep the gospel alive in Thessalonica, then surely they are God's people. If there is no love then there is no faith. You know, I'm not often prone to preach sermons on love, but that doesn't mean that you don't understand love. You don't get a sermon on it every week, but Christians know the love of God instinctively. When you're saved, not only do you love God, but he puts it in your heart to love other believers. So you let one of us have a family problem, let someone in the church be sick, lose a loved one, Aren't there outpourings of love? In my wife's illness, there's been so much love that we turn away offers of help almost daily. And it's not because we don't appreciate the support. It's just that we don't know what to do with it all. There is so much of it. But we don't want you to stop offering because we can't put it all to use. Because here is the thing that we like to know. You're thinking of us. And you're praying for us. And the people of Brian Baptist Church will be there whenever they're needed. So you've shown that. So many have shown us love. Cleaning our house and bringing food and yard work and phone calls and constant inquiries. That's love that flows out of knowing and believing the truth. And this is not the same type of love, if you could call it that, that the world has. Where they have a sense of guilt. That is, if we don't share what we have, then we feel guilty because we have more than others have. No, this is a genuine love that's only shared by those who are God's people. And the news of this love had a profound effect on Paul. Why? Because that love produced the next tidings in this glowing report. He received a report of fidelity and of charity, their love. And now with this beaming personal effect, this report also speaks of their loyalty. You have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us. Is that good news to him? They had no regrets they met Paul. They believed what he said, though it brought them suffering. And they believed what he said, though it made them enemies. And they believed what he said, though it made them outcast. They believed what he said, though they were often lied about. But their reaction for knowing him was nothing like that of his enemies. They never said that he was a fraud. They never said he was deceitful. They never said he tried to take advantage of them. And what's the good news? They defended him. They stood behind him. They stood up for him. They loved him because he's the one that brought them Christ. He's the one that taught them the word of God. And so their repayment for that is loyalty. 
They wanted to see him again. They longed to know him better. They wanted to know Christ better. They wanted him back. And though his presence caused them much trouble and uproar in their city, yet they wanted to see him. See, loyalty is not what Paul always experienced from his converts. Paul wrote this letter from Corinth where many people heard the gospel and believed. But Corinth is not Thessalonica. There, they pushed Paul down. Some thought they were too smart for him. Some thought that they were holier than the apostle. Some left him for more attractive personalities. And that was painful. I remember in the early years of my ministry here that I sat across the table from one of the men in our church. I had no idea there was trouble except that I had seen that he and his family had stopped attending as regularly as they used to. So I wanted to meet with him and I arranged a meeting with him and we met down here at Applebee's and across, from, uh, across the table from me, he said that he was leaving because there wasn't enough passion in my preaching. He said, you're not exciting enough. And I didn't re- need to read between the lines because he was telling me we need a more attractive preacher. And then I knew I can't, I can't satisfy, I couldn't satisfy their needs. And that's something that hurts. It hurts when you know you can't be all things to all people. But I can tell you this, when you get that church member who is loyal and you get the one who's happy to see you and you get that one who has your back and the one who will defend you, that's when you have untold joy in the ministry. Now, may I show you Paul's heart for people that Uh, If you think he wasn't an apostle of love, I want you to listen to this comment that he made in the second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. They weren't loyal. That was painful, but still he loved them. He agonized over them. I read this wonderful quote by D. Edmund Hebert, who said, not to care for a place in the hearts of others, not to wish for love, not to need it, not to miss it if it's wanting, does not signify that we are far from selfishness or vanity. It's the mark of a cold and narrow heart, shut up in itself and disqualified for any service, the very essence of which is love. The thankfulness or indifference of others is not a reason why we should cease to serve them, yet it is apt to make the attempted service heartless And if you would encourage any who have helped you in your spiritual life, do not forget them, but esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake. Now there's a pastor who may have seen much the same indifference of love from his converts as Paul. And though some will not be loyal to you, and some may deeply hurt you, the pastor has to be as Paul. I will love you, though the less I be loved. Now think of joy. The joy he had in hearing this report. After all the pains that he had in serving the Corinthians, this church wants to see him. They were anxious to know how he was doing. And when Timothy went to them, he found out they were as anxious to find out about Paul as Paul was to find out about them. And what are those those sweet times of ministry that rise above those that trouble you? It's to hear someone say, as I did a few weeks ago, Someone said, I'm a better Christian because of you. And when the pastor hears things like that, he must guard his heart with, for pride. 
He has to watch the pride. But isn't this what Hebert said needs to be done? If you would encourage any who have helped you in your spiritual life, do not forget them, but esteem them very highly for the work's sake. So it's a glowing report, a report of fidelity, charity, and loyalty. Now that leads us to our second observation, which is the welcome relief. In verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. Now, there's the way that you know that ministry is hitting on all cylinders. When love flows back and forth, when that's a two-way street, pastor to people and people to pastor, then you know the converts are real and people are receiving what they need from the ministry. Now, from my perspective... The pastor gets more from the people than he gives. And that's the way it always seems to me. I always fear that I haven't put enough out there. And then when I get something back, I think, well, that's far more than I deserve. Paul's anxiety over this church is not trivial. He didn't say all of this as if he wanted to appear that he's simply pious. These aren't words that ring hollow. Look at verse number 8. He says, for now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. And the implication here is that not knowing and thinking they might have failed was to him like the light of the living dead. He compares not knowing to death. Now you can make of that what you want and maybe it doesn't paint the picture of strength in Paul that you want to see but it sure shows that Paul was not a stone statue without emotions. He wasn't so strong that his emotions couldn't rattle him a bit. Don't think that Paul was a superhuman. He wasn't. He struggled to maintain. We see it in Romans 7. We talked about it when we discussed how he fought his body so that he wouldn't be a castaway that is to become ineffective in his ministry. And so he was troubled at times. And to receive a report like this was like having someone blow the ballast tanks where suddenly he burst above the depths of depression and he's up at the top inhaling the gracious mercies of God. His burden is not knowing about them. And perhaps he wouldn't hear a good report. And so then there would be emotions of failure. Maybe Thessalonica is another Corinth. There in Corinth, he recalled stresses in the ministry, the beatings and the shipwrecks, the robbers, the opposition of people. Then he concluded, he said, besides all of those things, there's the care of all the churches. He endured all those things from outside the church. And besides those cares, he had all the cares of the junk that goes on inside the church. How will he keep the flock from wandering away? How will they grow in their sanctification? How will he keep them from infighting and destroying themselves? Remember, he wrote to the Galatians, he said, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one another of one another. There is nothing as stressful for the pastor than to deal with conflicts between the membership. I attended a Bible conference many years ago. The subject of that conference was conflict resolution. And that was the most depressing, worst conference I've ever been to in my life. Now, thank God the pastor is not always tasked with pulling people apart. And that being a referee is not a full-time occupation in the church, not here at least. I I recall, and I think I told you this story a long time ago about a church that I know of in Kentucky, not far from where we lived, that was right next to a Civil War battlefield. 
And they named the church after that battlefield. They called it Battle Baptist Church. And there was never a church that was so aptly named. I mean, they grinded up and they spit out so many pastors that every potential pastor that went there knew it was a death sentence. So thank God when you have a church that when the pastor leaves, he doesn't say like Paul, I fought a good fight. And he means that's what I always did. I was fighting inside the church. Now let's, let's leave the fights for outside. Let's not have that go on in the inside. And so it was good news to hear from Thessalonica. Paul, you don't need to worry about us. We love you. We're praying for you. We want to see you. We've got your back. Don't worry. We'll be fine until you get here. And I can tell you that moved Thessalonica out of the anxiety list, off of that list. No need to worry about them. They've just made his day. Now, another point to be made, it seems that the language of the letter indicates that there was a pressing problem that was weighing on Paul that he didn't reveal. He said, we are comforted by you in our affliction and distress. So there's something that was bothering him, something that he doesn't tell us. Perhaps the Holy Spirit didn't let him reveal all the things about his life because the Spirit didn't want him to sound like the depressed apostle. But whatever that was, this good news stepped on that. It squashed it. His stomach was calm, uh, like having a spiritual Alka-Seltzer. Uh, maybe it was spiritual Prozac because it changed his mood, that's for sure. And then that brings us to the third. There's a glowing report. There's welcome relief. And then thirdly, the thanks rendered. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now I'll be brief to finish up. Next time I'll give you some more information about verse 10. But I just want to, to, to say that Paul returned to the thanks that he expressed in the beginning of the letter. In that first chapter, he said, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. You ever been in the middle of something stressful and you see hope and relief and it's as if the sun suddenly came out from behind a black cloud? And so you look up and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. And you'll notice very carefully what he doesn't say. He didn't say, thank you, Thessalonians. No, he thanked God because God is the one who works in his people. And we'll see in the next verses how many times he speaks of God. For him, it all goes back to God, to God's wonderful work. And you go back to verse 8 where he says, we live if you stand fast in the Lord. He didn't say we live now that we know all of you have good jobs. And we live now that, that you have plenty of money. And we live now that we know you're healthy. And we live now that we know that you're happy. No, he said we live now that we know that you stand fast in the Lord. See, it's always going back to the Lord. That's how his name's going to be glorified. And so if the Thessalonians were steadfastly preaching the gospel, that the gospel would sound out from this wicked pagan city, then Paul knew the ministry was effective. The objective of glorifying God was achieved. Now you go back to 2 and chapter 2 verse 4. It says that he was entrusted with the gospel. He preached for the glory of God. He preached to please God and not men. And then in verse 12, 
He said, this is all for the purpose to make you worthy, to walk worthy of God. And if that happens, what can you do but praise God? It's God that works in us. He's the one that made us, not we ourselves. And so when a pastor can praise God for the work that's done in the people's hearts, that's when his joy is fulfilled. His children in the faith are serving, they're learning, they're growing. They love God and they love each other and they love him. And folks, that is a fulfilled ministry. Still, we see there's much work to do. I'm going to stop here, but I'll prepare you a little bit for next time that Paul prayed that he would return to teach them more and perfect their faith. And we'll understand more what he means there when we study chapter 4. But they lacked in some areas. Their faith hadn't yet affected all their practice. And that's what the sanctifying process is for. It's to make faith rule in all areas of our life. So I'll just leave you with this today. I thank God for you. There are many times that the spirit of this church has lifted me. You haven't deserted us. Not even though we can't give as much love and concern for you as you've given to us. None of you have yet asked for an Applebee's meeting. And uh, maybe that's why I don't like Applebee's. But, but it's good news, folks. It's good news when I see you glorifying God. It's good news when I see our people have faith. When I see our people have love for each other. And it's certainly good news to understand the loyalty that you have for the gospel. And to me, as your pastor, to my family, to my wife. It's good news to know that we are part of Berean Baptist Church. We live if you stand fast in the Lord. And I live when I know that God's kingdom hasn't suffered because of me. And if it hasn't, give all the glory to God if I've been any benefit to you at all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for our church. Thank you for our people. Lord, our hearts overflow with joy uh, each time that we come here and see the smiles on your people's faces, to see people that love you, uh, people that have a strong faith, and then, as we've mentioned several times, the loyalty that they show to us and just the concern that they have for everything that goes on in our lives. And we thank you for that. May you help us, Lord, to return that same love and concern to our people. Pray, Father, that you'd uh, speak to our hearts today. Encourage us in the faith and our love for each other. And we'll just give you the praise for all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org